Uh, you can turn over to First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. As Ken mentioned before, we're gonna keep going in First Peter. I was looking at some of my my list of my notes for other messages uh, while I was preparing this one, and I realized that I started speaking on First Peter in 2021. <laughs> And we're not even done with chapter two yet. So, um, yeah, it's taken a long time. But, uh, I think we'll finish chapter two today. So make some progress and, uh, continue on however quickly we can go. Um, we're on the topic of submission. And in first Peter, I think the book is divided up into three sections. And the overall theme that Peter has for his readers is uh, to reveal or to declare, uh, to encourage his readers in the true grace of God. The true grace of God. And how that's revealed in three different, um, three different categories of our walk as Christians. So the first category or the first section of the book, I think, deals with our salvation. And Peter's basic point there is that um, we see the tremendous grace of God in his salvation for us, in all the things that he's given to us. And it all culminates uh, at the beginning of chapter 2, uh, where he calls us a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were a people, but now you are God's people. Or once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had received, not had, re- <laughs> once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That's verses nine and ten. And so our salvation culminates in this tremendous grace given to us that once having been apart from God, now we have a secure inheritance that he talks about in chapter one. We have an obligation to be holy to him and we have a, a partnership with the, with the Lord in what he is declaring to the world. His, um, his excellencies. Now we're in section two, where Peter transitions to a different topic of submission. Now, we talked about early on, and hopefully you remember a little bit of this, but we talked about early on how Peter's audience is uh, a group of believers throughout some region regions in Asia Minor, or what is modern-day Turkey, and they're in the Roman Empire, and they either are now suffering or they're about to suffer, because suffering is, or uh, persecution is spreading out from Rome under the rulership of Nero or is about to. It's possible that Peter is in Rome at this time and he's seeing it firsthand there and he's writing to believers further out in the empire to prepare them for what's coming. Either that or it's already there and he knows they're suffering tremendously already. And so submission is a topic for them because submission is a difficult place to see God's grace expressed uh, to Christians and in our lives, when we are called to submit in various areas, how do we see God's grace expressed in those in those areas? So Peter covers three areas of submission. The first one we already talked about, um, it starts in verse 13, and Peter basically says, any area, any created authority by uh, that we experience in human government or human organization is to be submitted to. And um, then today we're going to talk about another area. So that's kind of the overall governmental, political area of submission, where God has ordained emperors and governors and so on down the line to create order in the world. These are his structures, not just man-made. They're his structures um, that he has put in place. He's given authority to men 
to create these structures for us, and we must submit to them. Um, but before last time, when I was going to talk about masters and slaves, oh well, let me back up a little. So he he talks about that area of submission, but then the next area that we're going to talk about today is masters and slaves, and then the third area in chapter three is husbands and wives. So he goes from kind of the government political area of submission to the economic area of submission to the household area of submission, getting more and more specific as he moves along. But these are all areas of authority, God-ordained authority, where he calls us to submit to those authorities in our lives. But last time I spoke, I thought, as I was preparing for this message, or this passage last time, I thought we had to take a step back and review what is biblical submission. Uh, because we can't understand what Peter is really talking to us about here if we don't understand what real biblical submission is. And the reason we need to study that from Scripture is because our idea of submission isn't really our societal idea of submission, and what we glean from culture doesn't really line up with the scriptural idea of submission. So, of course, I don't want to go through everything we went through when I spoke last time, but the conclusion I came to, and hopefully I led you to the same conclusion that you agree, but the conclusion I came to was this definition of biblical submission. Biblical submission is an attitude, an attitude of willingly yielding to God-ordained authorities so that we may please and honor the Lord. So you can see action there, limitation, and purpose. And that guides us in how we submit then. If we're doing it for the Lord, then that really answers all the questions that we that come up about difficulties in submission to unrighteous authorities and and uh, um, sinful authorities. So today, with that definition in mind, uh, and hopefully that's helpful, with that definition in mind, we're going to talk about the next section that Peter has here, masters and slaves. So let's read these verses, and uh, and then we'll talk about how we're going to study them this morning. So we're going to start in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. We'll read 18, 19, and 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and you are beaten, you endure? But if, when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so you might follow in his footsteps. I read an extra verse there, but we'll read those next verses a little bit in more detail later. So, what does Peter command here? It's really pretty straightforward, isn't it? Okay, he's talking to servants and masters. His command is that they must submit to their masters. While doing so, they have to show respect and all due honor. And uh, it's uh, without regard to the quality of the master, whether he's good or whether he's evil. Okay, pretty straightforward command. Now, how we apply that might be difficult, but what he's commanding is pretty simple. He also adds in that um, even if this means suffering unjustly, we are to continue to submit because this finds favor with God. And we're to be careful to not attribute suffering that we might experience, punishment that we might experience for our own sin, as if it held the same credit as doing good and suffering unjustly while we do good. So he helps us to, um, he helps us to distinguish there 
between what is righteous suffering and what is just suffering because of the natural consequences of our sin. So even if the what is a little bit straightforward here, the how brings up some good questions. So how are we to apply this? So we're going to study this this morning with three different questions. And the first question that we're going to start off with is, do these verses apply to us? All right, we have to answer that question with any scripture that we encounter, don't we? We have to know if these verses apply to us, whatever verses they might be. But in these particular verses, um, the question arises from the first word in our verses, and the answer is also derived from the first word. So what is the first word? The first word is servants. Servants, be subject to your masters. So this is a context that does not really exist in today's society, does it? Now, we might see it uh, expressed in in some perverted ways and some things. It's not that it's not that there's no slavery in the world today. But in our society in general, this is not how our economy works. We don't have masters. We don't have slaves. Um, so what is Peter talking about? Do these verses even apply to us today if this construct doesn't exist? And that's a good question. So one note there too, the word for servant here, you might uh, read it in your translation as slave. And there's another translation, and you might have one of these as well, that might even render it as domestic servants. So just a little background there. Um, there's a word in, in Greek used mostly throughout the New Testament, and if you go to cross-references for these verses, you'll see that word used. It's doulos. And I'm sure you've heard that word before, but that word means slave. Uh, and it would cover basically any kind of slave in the Roman Empire at that time. This word that Peter use here, uses here is a slightly different word that's a little bit more specific, and the translations that translate it as domestic servant really kind of get it right. That's the most specific word. But there's really not that much distinction between a domestic servant and a slave because a domestic servant was a slave. So it's a more specific term, but it's not extremely relevant to what Peter's talking about here. So just a note there, if you, if, if as I was reading it, when I said servants, you see slaves, there's a lot of overlap. But that kind of gets to the heart of the answer to our question, too, of whether this applies to us. So let's look a little bit at what Peter, who Peter is really talking to. And before we do that, we have to acknowledge our perspective in the United States of America. Now this morning, uh, Nick was mentioning how we have many guests here, even from Kuwait. So we're not just Americans here. There's more than just the American perspective here. And yet I would say, probably globally, it's not unfair to say that our our uh, most recent view of slavery is tainted by uh, the horrible abuses that happened in our nation and around the world with um, with the slavery of African peoples in the Americas and, and all over the place. Is that the type of slavery that Peter is talking about? And is that what we should have in mind when we read these, uh, read these verses? So to answer that, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what first century slaves really were. Okay, so I don't know any of this information. I had to look all of this up. Obviously, none of us uh, can have a perfectly clear picture of what it was like in the first century. We're relying on the documents that we have, the narratives, the historians from back then, to tell us what slavery was like. But we do get a pretty clear picture of what it looked like. We can get enough clues to get an idea of who Peter is really talking to. So here are a few things about slavery in the first century in the Roman Empire uh, when Peter is writing to his audience. So, first of all, they comprised a huge portion of the empire. They don't know exactly how many people in the Roman Empire were slaves, 
but estimates are anywhere from a third of the population to a half of the population were slaves at that time. So it's most likely that a large portion of Peter's audience fell into this category of slaves. There are many ways that you could become a slave in the Roman Empire. Um, one was through war. So uh, obviously there were a lot of wars going on in the Roman times, and uh, they would capture the enemy. And a lot of times those enemies would be put to work uh, if they were kept alive. They were made slaves. So you could have been a foreign uh, captured enemy. A rather tragic means of becoming a slave was abandoned children. It wasn't uncommon back then for families to not want a child, and what they would do is they would just abandon it, leave it somewhere. And it was legal then to pick up such a child as someone else, someone else come along, pick up such a child and raise it and put it, put that child to work as a slave in your home. That was one way you could become a slave. Parents, um, it was also... Uh, I don't know if it was common, but it did happen that parents would sell their children into slavery to uh, pay off debts. That was another way you could become a slave. Sometimes people sold themselves into slavery to solve issues of debt or um, some type of some type of debt, whether it was money or not, to someone else. They would sell themselves to escape being a, a impoverished freeman. It was better to be a slave and essentially be taken care of and have work. Uh, than to uh, be on your own. And then finally, and this was probably most of the population at the time Peter was writing, um, many people were simply born into slavery. Their parents were slaves, and um, from birth, they were in a slave family, and they were kept that way. Sometimes this depended on the local regional laws, if that was legal or not. So there are many ways that they could enter into slavery. And by this time, um, it's interesting, there were some horrible abuses of slavery during the, the hundreds of years of the Roman Empire, but at this time, there were actually a lot of measures being put into place to improve the conditions for a slave. So things were generally improving with laws and um, protections for them throughout the empire. Keep in mind, too, that slaves back then were not only just um, ignorant, uneducated laborers. Slaves could also include um, managers of other of other workers, overseers, um, they include trained professionals sometimes too, like doctors, nurses, musicians, artists. Uh, and yet, um, and, and so they would, they would be part of someone's household or in someone's workforce, uh, but it didn't necessarily mean that they were uneducated. Some of these people were quite trained and educated people. Um, in general, they had their housing, food, and clothing taken care of, so they had their needs met. Obviously, this was in the interest of their masters so that they could continue to serve them. They could even, and sometimes, uh, own their own property. They could marry. And uh, in some cases, there were instances where slaves would actually have their own business that would benefit themselves and their masters. So there's quite a degree of freedom in some cases. And yet, we can't escape the fact that these people were slaves. It was involuntary. There are very limited options for them to obtain their freedom. Uh, they could do it in certain ways, um, but it was not at all a, an easy thing or a cheap thing. And certainly abuses existed throughout the empire too. I don't want to paint a rosy picture. Um, and finally, perhaps most condemningly, uh, slaves occupied uh, for certain a lesser status uh, than a citizen of the empire. Um, in many cases, they were considered property and they were not free uh, persons to do what they liked. They, were, they lived at the behest of their masters. And yet, the full description of what we have here as slavery in the Roman Empire, while not obviously something to be desired, 
still isn't quite to the degree of the excesses and the abuses that we think of when we think of slavery. And so we don't really have one single word in the English language to describe exactly who Peter is talking to. The definition of what we have in the Roman Empire is somewhere between our word servant and our word slave. So does this apply to us? Well, I think yes, because the people Peter is talking to uh, were by far the most common arrangement of employee and employer at the time of the Roman Empire. And so I think we can glean from what Peter is telling us about masters and slaves, and we can apply this to our employee-employer relationship that runs our economy today, that most of us are, uh, we're one of those, aren't we? We're employers or employees. Most of us are probably employees. So that's our best application to apply it to that present-day circumstance. So can we simply replace slave with employee and master with employer? So let's read these verses that way. Employees, be subject to your employers with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while while, uh, suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So for the most part, yes, I think this works, doesn't it, when we read it? If we simply kind of replace our modern terminology, it works. We should respect or even fear to a degree, that's the word for respect here, uh, our employers. They have a great degree of control over our lives, don't they? They can fire us. They can make our lives enjoyable or less enjoyable at work. They can influence um, how our lives go by, uh, you know, in the worst case, letting us have a job or not. So there's a degree of fear there where we ought to work for their pleasure. And Peter's command here is, you know, makes it clear that we need to submit to our employers. They have legitimate God-ordained authority over us. So we can apply that. Um, we should take comfort in the fact that if we are currently employed under an unjust employer and suffer under that, that God sees that, he cares about it, and he considers it credit if we do good and suffer for that. We can apply that to our lives. We should take comfort in that. And we should take heart, take to heart, the difference between suffering for our own sins and our own mishaps at work and those that come about while we are doing good at no fault of our own. So we can take that to heart as well. But there are still a couple of things that are unclear. And we'll spend the rest of the time looking at these two questions. The first one is, how far should we take submitting to an unjust employer? How far should we take Submitting to an unjust employer. Should we take it to the degree that Peter seems to imply here that even if we're beaten for doing good, we should endure it and suffer under that? Should we take it that far or even further? What is the extent of an unjust master to which we should submit? And secondly, does God prefer that we choose suffering? If we have the opportunity to escape a situation that is causing suffering, it almost seems like Peter is saying that it's better if we stay under that and endure through it. Is that what God wants? Does he want us to suffer? Would he prefer that we choose suffering over not suffering? So how far should submitting go? How far should we go to an unjust master? Peter takes care. He points out explicitly that slaves are to submit to masters whether they're good or whether they're evil whether they're good or whether they're unjust. The word for unjust here is crooked. 
So you could take it as kind of a crooked businessman, where maybe he's doing things illegally or things um, not really on the up and up. It can also be uh, kind of um, analogously applied to his moral condition. He's just an immoral mind. He's crookedly. He's morally crooked. So that you can see how it would, um, you know, influence his employees, his slaves. Uh, he could treat them harshly, treat them unjustly. So we have to remember Peter's audience, and we just talked about this a little bit, but we have to remember Peter's audience when he gives this command to oh, submit to just and unjust masters. And what I mean specifically by that is that slaves in the Roman Empire simply had no choice. Peter doesn't really address the option of, hey, if your master is unjust, just go find another master, because that wasn't even in the realm of possibilities back then. You didn't have any choice about who you worked for if you were a slave in the Roman Empire. And so it wouldn't have even made any sense for Peter to talk about, hey, if you're having a hard time, just find a better condition. Go somewhere else or alleviate that suffering. So he doesn't address it because it simply wasn't a reality for the people that he was talking to. Well, if the master was really evil and unjust, how about fleeing from that master? Well, that certainly was an option. Uh, there's a whole book in the Bible dedicated to a master uh, taking back a slave, Philemon. Paul writes to Philemon. Uh, I never remember if Philemon is the slave or the master. Uh, but it's an escaped slave, and Paul is writing to the master to accept him back because he's a brother now. So this man had fled from his master. It certainly happened. Why doesn't Peter give that as an option? Well, this really wasn't an option for most people. If you were a slave, most likely, especially if you had an unjust master, you probably had no family, probably had no property, probably had no money of your own. You had nowhere to go. Where on earth were you going to flee to? It was not legal for you. You had no legal status in the empire. So a slave in the empire, where could he go? This would only lead to more suffering. In one of the most egregious cases... Um, there were slave rebellions where slaves rebelled against their masters throughout the uh, course of the Roman Empire. One of the most famous ones is the story of Spartacus. Has anybody, you, any of you heard the movie or, or read the, heard or read the movie, watched the movie? <laughs> I think it's a Stanley Kubrick movie. I've never seen the whole thing, but uh, Kirk Douglas is in it in his younger days. And uh, it's a movie about this man, Spartacus, who's a real historical character. He was a gladiator. He was a slave. And... Uh, I read a little bit about the real history of it. I think the movie gives you a little bit of a glamorized view. Uh, but he didn't necessarily intend to start this rebellion, but he was caught up in it and ended up leading it. He amassed a huge army of fled slaves to his side. Uh, I, one number I read was 70,000 men came to be in his army at one point. And he led several successful campaigns against Roman legions who were trying to suppress this rebellion. And yet... Uh, the Romans could not let this stand, and it ended up with 6,000 of Spartacus's remaining men. He died in battle, apparently. But the survivors of the last battle that they fought, 6,000 of them were all crucified on a road into Rome and left hanging there for years as warnings to other slaves uh, in case they wanted to flee their masters and rebel. So, was fleeing really an option for slaves? Well, the most successful rebellion in the Roman Empire ended up with 6,000 people crucified on the road to Rome. A gruesome testimony to Rome's view of fleeing rebellious slaves. That happened about 130 years before Peter's writing to his audience. So the hopefully the conditions were a little bit better by Peter's time, but still it shows the Roman attitude towards a fleed or a free 
someone who a slave who is rebelling. So Peter basically doesn't even address that, does he? He instructs them, instead of choosing the hardship of fleeing and all that would come with that, he instructs them instead to choose the hardship of staying, even under an unjust master. And that was really the only option they have. But it aligned them with God's authority structure, even if there was a sinful master over them. And it gave them an opportunity to do good. What good could they do fleeing, always with the law at their back, chasing them? But staying in the household um, gave them the opportunity to do good and suffer unjustly for it, which Peter encourages them that God sees and he knows and he cares about and gives them credit for. Now, to be clear, are there were there conditions that even Peter would have agreed, to, agreed with for slaves to flee and find refuge somewhere else? Maybe, maybe so. I don't want to say that the most wicked, evil, horrible situations were to be submitted to always. But Peter isn't dealing with every circumstance here. He's dealing with the attitude of our minds. With the slightest injustice, are we, are we rebellious in our hearts and I will not stand for this, I'm out of here? Or are we willing to submit and suffer for the Lord's sake to continue to be able to do good? And I think that's the uh, attitude he's addressing. So how does this apply to us today? Well, we're not in the same circumstances, are we? Employees are thankfully uh, protected by many righteous laws that we have in our in our society today where employers are not allowed to abuse us, uh, certainly to the extent that they were allowed to abuse slaves. Um, employers, um, or we also have many employment options, don't we? For the vast majority of us, uh, there are probably uh, dozens of companies just in the Kansas City area that do the thing we do. And so if we find ourselves under the thumb of a, of a wicked, unjust employer for some reason or another, uh, we are fully justified in today's culture, in today's uh, legal protections, to go find another employee. There's no reason we need to suffer under that if we don't have to. We have options that Peter's audience did not have. So how does that apply to us? Well, um, we need to apply wisdom, don't we? Uh, we need to apply the rest of Scripture, not take just these portions as the only guidance for us in, in our employment. So we need to read things like Proverbs 22.3, which says, The clever sees danger and hides, but the simple goes on and suffers. Um, we need to make sure we're not disobeying God by remaining at our employers, because that is a higher calling. Uh, Peter, uh, in Acts 5.29, he uh, told the Sanhedrin, or the, uh, the high priest, he said, um, it is necessary for us to obey God rather than men. So he would not disobey God even though legitimate authorities were telling him to. And then finally, like Daniel and his friends, we need to be careful not to violate our own consciences by remaining in a workplace uh, beyond means that are justifiable. Uh, Daniel resolved, in Daniel 1.8 it says, Now Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the fine food of the king and with the wine that he drank. And so he requested from the commander of the court officials permission that he would not defile himself. Daniel refused to violate his conscience. Um, eating foods for us may not be uh, considered to be a problem. Back then it was for him under Jewish law, and he would not violate his conscience. So we need to apply wisdom in these ways. Um, and that wisdom may mean staying at the same employer for uh, longer than uh, we might think we want to. <laughs> it may mean seeking refuge in another employer as well. So my thoughts on this are that because we're under different conditions, we have different options available to us, we need to seek wisdom from the Lord on when to leave and when to stay. Uh, and it's not a sin if we go. 
If we stay, we may suffer, but we have the same promises that the slaves did here, that this is a gracious thing in God's sight, that if we continue to do good, but suffer for it because of an unjust employer, we have a promise from God that he sees it and he knows it and he credits it to us. It's a gracious thing with him and we can continue to do good. But if we seek another job, we've not sinned. This is an option available to us today. And as with everything, it all must be done with a good conscience toward the Lord, whichever way we choose. So how far do we take it today to serve and to submit to an unjust master? Well, I would say that Daniel and Joseph and other men in the Old Testament are our examples uh, to lead us and to guide us. Notice again, and I think I mentioned this last time, but Daniel did not quit submitting to his authorities. He was very... Uh, he never rebelled against them, and yet he could not obey. And that's our example with how to handle employers today. Even if we must leave, we can leave in two different ways, can't we? We can leave in a rebellious upstart way, pull people with us. Um, we can uh, malign our, our bosses on social media. We can write terrible emails blasting them for their injustices. Or we can declare the truth with love, perhaps, and leave with grace and with prayer for their turnabout. There's two different ways we can do things. All right, lastly, I want to answer the question, or try to answer the question, does God prefer that we choose suffering? If we have the choice to remain under an unjust employer and suffer, or to leave and seek relief somewhere else under another employer, does God prefer that we would stay with the unjust employer and suffer? I think it's a good question. When we read verses like that and when we start thinking or read verses like these and start thinking about the practical application, I think that's kind of a question that we wrestle with, whether we expressly say it or not. We kind of think, well, it's as a Christian, it's more holy if I'm miserable. And so I should stay here and suffer because that obviously is what God wants for me. If I'm happy, I'm probably doing something wrong and I need to confess that to the Lord. You laugh and I laugh at that too, but... This comes up in real conversation. It's a real thing. So does God want us to choose suffering? Well, fundamentally, I think the answer to the question is that this is the wrong question. We're not to answer, ask this question. Well, sorry. We can ask that question, of course. But it's the wrong question. It's not the question that leads us to the answer we need to have. It's not so much about what God wants so much as it is about the reality of living righteously in a sinful world. The promises we have in Scripture, for example, in 2 Timothy 3.12, are that if indeed, or and indeed, all those who want to live in a godly manner in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will suffer in an unjust world, an unrighteous world, if we want to follow Christ and live righteously. So the question isn't, does God want us to suffer? We will suffer living righteously in an unjust world. So in the moment, it might be best to escape an unjust employer, but don't be deceived. You will suffer in other ways and other and other conditions if you live righteously, no matter where you go. Now, I don't mean to have a doom and gloom uh, view of the world and, and want you to adopt that necessarily, but all I'm trying to point out is that Choosing where to go based on whether we're going to suffer or not is not the right question. God knows we're going to suffer. So what does God want? Peter tells us, verse 21, 
Look at with me in your Bibles at Second Peter or First Peter two twenty one. Peter tells us what God wants from us. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have turned, now have returned, uh, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. There are two big conclusions I think Peter wants us to understand. First of all, God wants us to suffer like Christ suffered. Like Christ suffered. It's not so much that he wants us to suffer. Suffering is a given. He wants us to suffer like Christ suffered. And the second big conclusion is that These are the mechanisms by which God accomplishes great good. Through Christ's suffering, this wasn't just a, well, Christ got buried under the wickedness of the world as he tried to overcome it and suffered a lot for it. Oh, well. Through that suffering, through that righteous life of Christ, God accomplished our salvation. So, is he capable of doing good through us? Yes. Notice how Christ suffered, first of all. He committed no sin. Deceit was not found in his mouth. He did not revile when reviled. He did not threaten when, uh, what does it say? Uh, uh, when suffering, he did not threaten. He didn't threaten. He didn't deceive. He didn't revile. He committed no sin. This is the manner in which Christ suffered. This is the example for us. Notice too what God accomplished, the salvation for all men. So what does God want for us in these times? Given that we will suffer if we live righteously. He wants us to commit no sin. He wants us to not deceive. He wants us to not revile. He wants us to not threaten. How are we going to do that? How are we going to follow Christ's example? Peter tells us. Isn't it nice that Peter just tells us? We don't have to guess. Christ continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And isn't that the core thing that we're worried about when we want to, when we, when we're chafing at the bit under suffering, under unjust masters? We want justice done. We don't want that master, that employer to continue to abuse us and those around us. We want justice done. Think of all the injustices done to Christ in his life and on the way to the cross. He didn't deserve any of it. He was the model citizen, the perfect man. He suffered tremendously under great injustices. And yet he entrusted himself to his heavenly father that he would judge justly. And that's how we can do the same thing that Christ did. If we will have faith in our heavenly father that though we suffer unjustly today, he will judge justly at the right time. And while we might burn inside for justice to be done, for people to be punished for the injustices that they commit, one of the ways God judges justly, I think, is knowing when to show mercy to them as well, when to show grace, when to know that that wicked employer you have will someday confront Christ himself and be on his knees and come to Christ himself. Whereas we would have destroyed them if we could have. God judges justly knowing each man's heart.
And so he's able to show mercy, he's able to show grace, and for those who are unrepentant and wicked men and women, he will judge them justly. We don't need to take care of that for us or for him. So, in conclusion, what do I think Peter is telling us today? I think uh, we unfortunately have a um, have a tendency, especially in American society today, to seek comfort everywhere we go, to seek the least path of least resistance. We want the best paying job with the best employees, with the best employer, with the nicest bosses. We want them to really take care of us. We want everything just right. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. I mean, in, a, in an ideal situation, uh, bosses are taking care of their employers. They're being kind to them. There's a healthy work environment. There's good communication and all that stuff. I'm not saying, I'm not criticizing that stuff. But I think what we miss is that God works through suffering. And that if we choose to uh, remain under unjust employment, we can trust in God that he will work through that, through the good that we are able to do through that. And so is it okay to choose, perhaps, to stay in a job where we're suffering tremendously, but we're doing it for the Lord? Or we're continuing to do good while we suffer? I think that's okay. And I think God will honor that if our conscience is right before God. Why might we do that? Well, I thought of a few examples that just might help you think through this, but why would we stay at a job that's horrible (laughs) and where we're suffering? Well, maybe the work we're doing does tremendous good for other people. Um, There's all sorts of services and goods that we're all involved with providing, and maybe that good, your small portion of providing that good for your neighbors, for your friends, for your for the people of your community is good, and you should stay in it. And if you retreat, Maybe there's no one to take your place. And you in Christ, because of the strength you have in Christ, can endure under this employer to continue to do that good where someone else might suffer more than you. That might be a reason, because your work is good. You might want to stay because your coworkers are suffering under the same injustices. And without Christ, they don't have the strength to endure this. And yet you can model Christ to them. So you can continue to be a witness and a strength and a help to your coworkers. Maybe you're a manager and you're shielding your team from the horrible upper management. And you can provide them a way, a means of continuing to work and provide for their families. Maybe they don't have as many options as you do. And as their manager, you can endure in Christ the injustices that are being done to shield your team, to help them, to serve them, to model Christ to them. And finally, maybe you have the opportunity to expose the injustices of your employer. By doing good, by using the legal protections that God has put into our culture, maybe by staying, you are the perfect one to expose those things and bring justice through the Lord's work through other authorities. And maybe you can think of other reasons too. I just want to put it in your mind that suffering or not suffering isn't really the balance on which we should make our decisions. Our decisions should be made on whether we can please the Lord and do good for the Lord in the place that we're at. And so if we use that as our metric instead, then I think the decisions of whether to stay or go become much more clear and easy to make. I'm sure there's a lot of open questions from from uh, this passage, and I, you know you can't cover. I couldn't cover everything. I don't have the intelligence or capacity to cover every situation. Um, but hopefully the main point is clear. What Peter is is giving us here that uh, God sees our unjust suffering. He cares about it, and uh, he will take care of us ultimately. 
The goal, the key is to be like Christ, to entrust ourselves to a just Heavenly Father. Lord, I pray that you would uh, allow us each to uh, apply these things rightly in our own lives. Um, I pray that you give us wisdom. Lord, uh, these three verses don't cover every circumstance that we're going to encounter. And we need wisdom from you to take these verses and other verses in Scripture, put them all together to determine what you would have us do. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would give us that wisdom. At the right time, we would seek you and we would constantly be um, uh, looking to you to guide us through these types of things in our lives. I thank you that you do give us wisdom in Scripture and that you give us a great resource in the Holy Spirit who is always with us to guide us and help us. Lord, I pray that we would not go it alone and make decisions basically, uh, based only on our comfort or our joy or our, I mean, our happiness, but we would make decisions based on what you want us to do and what you uh, would have us do, following the example of Christ who suffered for us. Amen.